In Philippians, we've seen teachings that we're supposed to put other people first. We're supposed to have the attitude of Christ. And it's really a lot easier to do that uh, when there isn't a problem, when there isn't like an actual person that is there driving you nuts. I think there was a Peanuts cartoon that once said something along the lines of, I love humanity, it's people I can't stand. And there's so much truth to that. We can talk about uh, how we need to put others first and their interests and not be selfish. That keeps running through the book of Philippians. Uh, But when you have a concrete person that's there that's driving you crazy, it's a whole different thing. So we're going to be looking at this. We're going to be in uh, Philippians chapter 4. We're going to do 1 through 3. And sometimes people wonder, you know, the, the verse divisions and the chapter divisions were added later. Should verse 1, should this have been with what you know, came before it or with this? But I like that we're going to do one, through and three, 1, 2, and 3 together because I want to really hit on the commonality in these verses I see with Christians as being brothers and sisters in Christ and that connection that we should have together and that therefore we need to stand together, as it's going to say, and also then not stand apart, not let things break us apart, whether it's quarrels, fights, disunity, but how important it is for us uh, to be together as brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's read together Philippians chapter 4, 1 through 3. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Judea and I treat Synecdoche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. We're going to walk through this kind of one verse at a time. So this first verse, which is kind of a transition, we're going to draw out this truth that brothers and sisters stand firm together. We're called to do this. And in walking through this passage, uh, it starts by saying, you know, therefore, which reminds us this is connected with everything that came before this, that everything that we should be drawing from from Philippians. So if you've been a part of this series, we're going to try and bring these things to mind. Uh, If you haven't, I encourage you to go back and and sometime read through Philippians. There's so much that's good there. Listen to the messages so that it all kind of connects together. He says, therefore, my brothers, and he talks about four things here. My brothers, whom I love, I long for, uh, my joy and my crown. Actually, five things that I count right there that he talks about with them. Uh, But the first thing I notice, he, he calls them brothers. And when he says this, uh, it, he's using a word that literally means brothers, but the understanding, he's not just talking about the males, he's talking about uh, the, the women as well. So in our way of speaking, we might say brothers and sisters in Christ. It's understood he's talking about both. But he, let's really focus on that relational aspect. That we're used to hearing Christians call each other brothers, and we see that in Scripture, but sometimes we don't just pause a little bit to think about what this is trying to get across that there is a relationship that is forged between people, a union that happens between people that uh, we had nothing in common before this, that we're not related by, by blood, uh, but are related by something now, united by something that is, is deeper than our DNA, that we are united by the blood of Christ that brings us together. And we're put together into the body of Christ, into this bond together. Scripture says that when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are adopted into God's family. And you're adopted, and now God the Father is your Father. Sometimes we think everyone is, that everyone is um, God's uh, child. And there's a sense he's the creator of all of us. But according to Scripture... Uh, before you trust in Christ, it refers to your, your father in this world as being the, the devil, in a sense. But when you trust Christ, you move into a new family, a good family, not this abusive family that we used to be in in the world under Satan. Uh, and we're united with Jesus Christ as our, our elder brother. 
And so we have this new family relationship, and we need to realize that and how important that is. And therefore, when we gather with other Christians, uh, whether, I mean, it's true of anybody else in this whole world that is a genuine Christian, trusting in Jesus Christ alone uh, for their salvation, but especially within the local church, we need to not think of it like we're just coming to, to see a movie. That you come, you come to see a show, you pay your price for your ticket, you come, you see it, and there's people you sit next to and then you leave. But that this is more like, this is a family gathering. This is more like a meal, a Thanksgiving feast, a time that we come together uh, to not only worship God together, to hear from God together, but we are supporting each other. We are to encourage each other. We're lifting each other up. We're getting to know each other so we can see each other's needs and helping each other. Because that's what a good family, people in a family do for each other. So recognizing that Paul is calling them brothers because in Christ, that's who we are together, brothers and sisters in Christ. He says other things too. He says, uh, whom I, I love. So he has deep love for them, who he longs for. I mean, he desires to see them again. They're not people that once in a while when they get together it's it's fine and you endure that uh, but these are family members that he he longs to see them he's apart from them he calls them my joy we've noticed how many times that philippians uses the word joy or rejoice it's just a predominant theme in this whole uh, letter and he says my crown and think of this there's different words in scripture for crown uh, one is diadem, and that's like a ruler's crown, like a king would wear that. This would be the word Stephanos, or Stephanos. So if your name is Stephen or Stephanie, it comes from this word. And this was the, like a, a victor's crown. So if you've seen the ancient Olympics, they had these wreaths that they would wear on their head that was made of like laurels or leaves together. And that's what they would get if they, they won the race and they would be rewarded with this type of a crown. And Paul had just been talking about these metaphors in the past few messages we've been talking about it, of kind of running the race and reaching the end. But he said part of what he considered his, uh, his, his, his trophy, his treasure, uh, was them, that they were his crown that he received. But then it says here, stand firm thus in the Lord, that they're to, to stand firm. And stand firm this is the command that's in this verse. This is what they're called to do. And this is not the first time that he says this. And back in chapter 1, 27, he said uh, something very similar. He actually used the same Greek word. He said, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. And with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. When we talked about that message, uh, if you recall, we mentioned that in Philippi, a lot of the population there were retired Roman soldiers. And it was colonized by a lot of Roman soldiers. And in the Roman army, uh, they were used to one of their tactics was this formation that they would make, this tortoise formation, where they would all lock their shields together and by doing this, they could advance in, you know, the enemy, they could stand firm no matter what was being hurled at them. And some would hold their shields like this, some would put it above them. And it was important for everyone to have their shield in place. I read somewhere that actually in the Roman army, if, if you lost your sword, your gladius, or your helmet or something, that was a serious thing. But it was the most serious, and you were punished most severely, if you lost your shield. Because if you lost your shield, not only was this bad for you, but it was bad for everyone that was around you. And the same way as believers, we need to recognize that we're not just called in this Christian life to stand firm just for ourselves, but we're to stand firm for each other. That we provide protection, we provide support for one another. And therefore, when we lose our shield, when we drop that, it not only leaves us vulnerable, but it's making it difficult for the other Christians that are around us as well. And so we're called to stand, and we're called to do this, I believe, not just individually, but we're called to do this together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we just notice, too, that in this, remember, Paul, is, he's saying, therefore, my brothers, stand firm thus in the Lord. He said some of this already, but now he's coming back, and he's reminding them of this. But now with everything that he's taught them so far in this letter, they're to have this in mind. 
that this is one of the applications, how they're supposed to put this forward, remembering all these truths that he has taught them to stand firm together in Christ. So that's verse 1. Now, they're to stand firm, they're to be together, which also means that they're not to be separate, they're not to be apart. But there's a lot of times in life where we're not together, where people have disunity, there's, there's fractions within the body of Christ. So moving on to verse 2, brothers and sisters agree in the Lord together. He says, I entreat Yodia and I treat Synecdoche to agree in the Lord. As we read on to verse 3, we see that there was a disagreement that was happening between these two sisters in Christ. You know, sometimes siblings uh, fight. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, we're siblings in Christ, but sometimes siblings fight. Not your kids. I know. Not my kids. You know, my, my kids, they're pastor's kids. I mean, they come out of the womb pretty much immaculate. You know, they get up early in the morning after making breakfast in bed for, uh, for hoping myself, and then they, they, they spend the whole day, um, you know, praying for missionaries together as they clean the house. Um, I'm sure it's the same with your kids, but I've heard, I've heard there are some kids, some siblings that fight, and in the deep recesses of my mind, I guess maybe there's times with my brother and sister that we might have as well. Um, but yeah, they fight about all kinds of, you know, different things, um, you know, a lot of it ends up being, you, know, you can't tell me what to do, or, uh, again, I'm talking about other people's kids, not our kids look at me, you know, something, put your feet down, uh, you know, Luke, stop playing the drums early in the morning. There could be lots of people named Luke. It's not necessarily about you, <laughs> you know, but uh, <laughs> I won't embarrass you guys. There are plenty of videos, although I do have them, so just so you know. <laughs> Sometimes siblings fight, and it's true of literal siblings, but it's also true of siblings, brothers, and sisters within the body of Christ. Wish it weren't so, but it is too often. And here we have an example of two of these Christians in Philippi, Yodia and Synecdoche. I had a Bible prof that, well, let's call them Odor and Stinky, uh, that Odor and Stinky here, uh, or Yodia and Synecdoche, you have to practice saying those names, that they weren't getting along. They were in some kind of fight, some kind of disagreement, Something was going on with them. And Paul calls them out by name. Now just imagine this. You are at this church in Philippi and uh, you're there and Epaphroditus you know, shows up because you had sent money to Paul to, to help him while he's in prison and you sent that along with Epaphroditus. He finally returns and he's like, I have a letter to the church from Paul. And so they gather together and it's being read, and people are like, this is great, all of the you know, beautiful things Paul's saying. And all of a sudden, he calls out you know, two women you know, in the church you know, by name. And uh, just think if we did that you know, in church right here, just in the middle of the sermon, I'm going to start calling out people. You know, John Schmidt, you know, I'm going to talk to you. Larry, gonna, <laughs> what's going on? But that's, uh, Paul apparently thought it was you know, appropriate enough that uh, he needed to do this. Which tells me, I think it was not a huge secret as far as what was going on. It had made its way to Paul that these two women, uh, which seemed very prominent in the church here, uh, were having some kind of fight. And it wasn't good for them, and it probably wasn't going to be good for the church. And they needed, he was telling them, you got to knock this off. you got to come to agreement. you got to get back in sync with each other. Because this isn't good. This isn't how brothers and sisters in Christ are supposed to be. So you need to work on this. And he calls them up by name, the way that he writes this. And he says, I entreat Yodia, and I entreat Synecdoche. Uh, calling them out specifically that he's saying the responsibility is to both of them. It's not one of them. You are the one. You need to be the one to uh, reconcile with the other. He's telling both of them to be working on this. And I think that is something that we need to remember too when we are out of sync with other Christians. Don't think that it should be the other person's responsibility. Don't think, well, that person is the one in the wrong, so they should be the one to initiate. I think God is calling all of us. If you are mature in Christ, he is calling you to be the one to initiate this process of reconciliation and coming back together. Now, we don't know a whole lot about who these women were. 
and we don't know what the issue was that was going on. There were obviously prominent women in the, the Philippian church. Uh, verse 3 says that they labored side by side with Paul in the gospel. And so they're co-workers along with him. They're very active in, in the ministry. Uh, now there's some that I believe take this too far and argue that, well, that must mean that they were, um, uh, you know, had the office of deacon or of elder because it says that they're laboring side by side. I think that's reading into this text things that people want to be there but really aren't there. Because actually, one of the reasons in support of why I think that is, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 27, it uses the exact same Greek word that here is translated labored side by side. And in chapter 1, verse 27, it says striving side by side, but it's the exact same Greek word. And there's use of the entire church. So if this, you know, meant that they were, had, you know, certain offices necessarily, well, that would apply to everyone. But, you know, ministry is not about having a specific office. And I'm really glad for that because there is a, a lot more uh, for the body of Christ to be doing than what Pastor Nick and I and the deacons uh, can be doing. And that's why we are all called to be a part of this work that we have together to be striving, to be laboring side by side. That word is sin athleto, that has, means to, to, to wrestle or to struggle along with each other side by side. And so we're all in this together. We all need to be working. There's no one that should be a Christian. If you're in the body of Christ, that you're a spectator. This is not a spectator sport where the action happens on the stage or the people that are employed. It's all of us. And it's what you do. There's things that you're going to be called to do within the body of Christ, uh, helping in different ways according to your, your abilities, your gifting. And there's things that need to be done, yep, in this building. And there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done outside of this building as we're taking the, the light of Jesus Christ into the world that needs it. Building relationships, telling people about Christ, inviting people to church, talking with them, people that would are maybe very far from taking their first uh, step inside a church building, but you can talk with them. Needs that you can meet. Our callings in life that God has given us. Ways that you're, even through your, your work, you're helping the world be a, a better place. And so we need to be of this work. And ultimately, if it's the gospel, you know, not just doing good things generally in the world, but helping people come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Glorifying God through evangelism and discipleship. We say that's the, the, the core mission of this church. And we say it's to, to magnify God through uh, multiplying and maturing believers, followers of Christ, helping people that don't know Jesus Christ to come to know him so that they can be saved, have their sins washed away. And to realize that even the deepest sinner uh, is not so far gone in this life that the blood of Christ can't wash away their sin. It's the glory of the gospel. They just need to turn to Jesus Christ and embrace him and receive that free gift that is offered to them. And then we help each other to grow in Christ. And so that means having relationships with each other, discussions, practical needs, uh, just encouraging each other, talking about the Lord, helping each other to grow. All of these different things as we also work side by side. But these two ladies, they weren't getting along. Again, it wasn't a secret. And we don't know what the problem was, um, I mean, I assume they were good Baptists, so there's probably a potluck issue and there, there you know, was only one outlet left for the crock pot. Or, uh, no, who knows what it was? And who knows even how it started? You ever notice some of these things, they start really small and then one person takes offense and then it, it just goes back and forth and all of a sudden blossoms into something, mushrooms into something that uh, it didn't have to be that way. And sometimes you forget about what, the, what was the original thing about because it becomes more about, I don't know, a lot of times ego or uh, slighted feelings than whatever the initial problem actually was. You know, in some ways, I'm glad that we don't know what the issue is because then maybe we would just focus on that instead of the universal problem that we always have, that there's going to be times when we need to focus on reconciling and healing relationships with our brothers and our sisters that are in Christ together in a church. And not letting those be things that the devil would love to drive a wedge. The devil would love to do it, and he's done it many times. 
to, to split churches, to split Christians, to split relationships, because we're supposed to be together. We're supposed to be helping one another, and we're strongest when we're together. But if you can take the, the coals of the fire and just spread them out, I mean, that's how they, they go dim. But when the coals are together, is that's when they burn bright and burn the hottest. And so he, Paul says, I entreat them. The word entreat means to urge strongly. I mean, he's telling them that I need you to do this. I want you to do this. I plead with you both to come together. And he says, to agree in the Lord. Now, what do you mean by that? To agree in the Lord. You know, they're just, well, okay, we can agree on this. The word agree here, this is one of those things that we don't see as much in our English Bibles, um, but it's from a Greek word, phreneo. Okay, you don't have to remember that. But the thing is, it's used 10 times in this letter. And it gets translated a few different ways. For example, in chapter 2, 2, it says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full of cord and of one mind. It's translated as mind there twice. In chapter 2, 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ. And that's where he goes on to tell them, basically have the same mindset, the same attitude of Jesus, who even though he was existed eternally in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he was willing to come down to the, and be, take on humanity, form of a servant, death on a cross, have that kind of mindset, that type of attitude. So again, it's not just about a bunch of facts that you're believing or agreeing to, but having an outlook, having a mindset in Christ. In chapter 3, 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So again, this think in the term of having this mindset. In chapter 3, 19, it says, uh, talking about the enemies of Christ, and says, with minds set on earthly things. So again, their, their attitudes, their mindset was on earthly things rather than heavenly things and the things that they should be thinking about. So it gets used many times here, and that's the same word that's used here in verse 2, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Synecdoche to agree in the Lord. So Paul, when he says this, he's calling for more than just getting along. You know, this surface just, uh, you know, we'll get along and learn to coexist that you can, um, at least you're not fighting and but you're not, you're like, you know, two ships and at least you're not running into each other in the water at least. Keep your distance. No, he's, he's not saying that. He's calling for more than getting along. He's calling for a unity that comes from a shared mindset in Christ. That when we have this mindset of Christ, it's going to help us to, to make the decisions, to have the right attitude, uh, that we're applying all the things that we've seen in the book of Philippians that is going to keep disunity from happening, and when disunity does happen, is going to help to heal that. But it's not just a matter of patching things up. It's a, it's a deeper unity that comes from being Christ-like, growing into that Christ-likeness, having that attitude towards other people, towards yourself, and then living it out in this life. That's why one of the reasons I gave the subtitle of this series, to have an attitude shaped by an outlook in Christ. And I was trying to get across this idea that we need to have this outlook or mindset that is shaped by what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be growing to be like Christ in our lives. And this is not just something that is... uh, this ethereal thing that we need to happen, this is going to matter day by day in our lives. It's going to keep there from being conflict with one another. It's going to keep unity within the church and with your relationships the more that each of us uh, can make the, the commitment to do this and to put our mind in that frame. And it's with God's help. It's with the Holy Spirit doing this because we are not strong enough, but we have God working in and through us. So it is our responsibility, but it's God working through us to help us to do this, to have this idea of this type of mindset. Before we move on, I just want to think, I, I started brainstorming just what are some of the reasons why people in church fight? What are some of the, the reasons? I started making a list. This is not a scientific list. 
Uh, this is not an exhaustive list, and I invite you to add to this, but uh, this is what I came up with, and once I was done, I realized, man, there's a lot more things I could add to this. Uh, but why do believers sometimes fight? People, it's one thing you could say, well, if someone's not a believer, we share different worldviews, and we should love our enemies. We get that, but we, we recognize that they're, you know, we're not on the same page, but believers, we're supposed to be on the same page. Yet, why does this happen? So thinking through just experiences, you know, growing up in a lot of different places, um, just a few examples. Uh, a lot of times, jealousy, envy, rivalry, and we see that mentioned in Scripture many times. People are jealous of someone else. There's uh, maybe for a thing or a position or something that they want, jockeying for position, some kind of rivalry, selfish ambition. It's, that's phrase is mentioned earlier in Philippians with some of the enemies of Paul that were uh, promoting themselves out of selfish ambition towards uh, you know, Paul, trying to uh, you know, outmaneuver him to have the prestige that they thought that Paul had. Unmet expectations. You know, sometimes we just have, uh, we, we think somebody should be doing something, that this is our expectation, and whether it's realistic or sometimes unrealistic, they don't meet that expectation, we get mad, and it becomes a beginning of some kind of quarrel or some kind of fight. Overinflated self-importance. How often is this the case? You know, that our, we get puffed up in who we think we are and the amount of spotlight we should have and, and our importance to uh, decision-making, to uh, being in front, to who knows what it is. And you don't have to just be the in-the-front person to have this overinflated self-importance. This can happen to, to anyone. Thin skin, jumping to conclusions. Think thin skin, how often can it be the case that, you know, somebody just, the, the slightest insult they take personally. And instead of, you know, it's like, you know, the slightest little mosquito bites them and it's like, ah, it's a big deal. Uh, in the same way, the slightest little slight that, uh, that happens and they're, they're easily wounded and offended by that. And I've thought about that. You know, if you want to pray one thing for me, you know, a great thing, and I've thought about this, I try to pray for myself, uh, pray that I would have thick skin and a tender heart. Because you don't want to have a hard heart where you don't care at all in that way. That's overdoing it, but you don't want to have thin skin either. But I think it's something for all of us, we want to have that attitude to have thick skin but a, but a tender heart. Jumping to conclusions, that happens a lot where we just, we assume the worst things about other people or we don't even have our facts straight and we get upset about something. Not really listening to each other, uh, trying to find out what is really going on. Again, some of these overlap quite a bit with each other, but I think these are things that oftentimes happen. Just the way that we communicate sometimes too really adds to this that we communicate sometimes in ways that aren't helpful to really understand or hear somebody's heart. Um, again, I think face-to-face -face, you know, communication whenever possible is the most helpful way to really work through things. But here's another thing at core, and again, a lot of these overlap, conflicting agendas. You know, sometimes people have goals, they have purposes, and agenda doesn't have to be a bad thing, but it can be. Where if some people, they want this, and the other person wants this. And which way are we going to go? And so there can be times, um, you know, it doesn't have to lead to conflict. You know, if people have their mind, uh, are in the right attitude, they can work through things. But oftentimes this is something that does lead to a lot of conflict because people make those agendas and they really turn it into something that is even more important, that it, it really becomes not just even conflicting agendas, but conflicting idols, something that they view this as almost godlike importance, that this has to be the case. And therefore, when these things are in conflict with each other, uh, they feel like, I, I have to fight this person, or I have to defend, and it starts to get ugly. But we think of all these things, and like I said, some of these overlap, and I think so often, for what I've seen, what I've noticed, that almost every time in a church situation with brothers and sisters in Christ, when there's some kind of conflict, I think it could be traced to this. Pride and ego. I think so often, um, and like I said, there's other things as well, but it really gets to pride and ego. And maybe it doesn't start that way. Maybe they don't even realize that's the case. 
that they think, well, this is the decision that's made here, and the other person thinks this is the decision, but as the disagreements happen, people take slights against each other, and they start to feel that, uh, well, if my way isn't the way that's chosen, then that's a, a mark down on me, and my pride says that it has to be the way that I think it should be, and it becomes about ego, it becomes about feeling competent, uh, becomes, you know, and our egos and pride, you know, in different people come out in a whole lot of different ways. But I think so often it's because we let our pride, our ego, you know, our self-view of ourself uh, become this most important thing. And it leads to a lot of damage. Because when we protect ourselves, we think we're, we lash out at the other people, we try to tear them down, and it just spirals and goes crazy out of control. And a lot of these things wouldn't have to be bad if you kept our pride, we kept our ego in check. Verse 3. So we're supposed to be agreeing together, coming together. What do we do about it? Verse 3. Now, Yodia and Synecdoche, they had responsibility. Paul was talking to them. But it's also great to know that we can help each other with conflict. And here, Paul is calling on someone else in the church to help them. And so for my next point, I'm going to say, help reconcile brothers and sisters together. Let me read verse 3 again. He says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. It is a beautiful thing when you can be used as a peacemaker in other people's lives. It's a beautiful thing when you can be used as a peacemaker with a conflict that you personally are in, where you take it upon yourself to be the one to initiate. Uh, And it's hard sometimes. We don't want to do that. Our mindset, the other person is wrong. The other person is the one being a jerk. Why should I have to do this? But maturity means that we take the initiative. Christ took the initiative in our salvation. He didn't wait for us to take the first step. If he had, we would still be all on the way to hell. But he took the initiative. And following Christ means we take the initiative as well to reconcile. And it's a beautiful thing when you do. But it's also a beautiful thing when you can be used to help two other believers that are struggling to come together. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily that, you know, go... Uh, stick your nose in every conflict that's there. There's some that probably is a bad idea, okay? You're going to need wisdom to know when and how to do this. But there are times when you can be that bridge. You can be that meteor, that go-between. Maybe they've asked you to do it. You know, that can be a great way to deal with conflict is you work through things you're trying to, but to bring in a third party, you know, somebody that's wise, somebody that's godly, not just somebody that you think, well, this person's going to take my side, so I'm going to pull this person in, but somebody that you know is going to be able to think biblically about the situation, hopefully that knows both of you, and that can help you to come together, see each other's point of view, help to unravel, you know, the mess that, is, that has happened. So be willing to, at times, ask somebody to come in and do that. But you also may have a relationship that where it is appropriate for you to come in and help bring two people back together, to be that agent of reconciliation in people's lives. And so Paul is asking someone to do this. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion. And we don't know who this is. Uh, people make a lot of guesses who this true companion might be, and I'm not going to take time to go through that because we don't really know who it is. True companion uh, is literally... Um, the word for companion is literally yoke fellow. And the King James actually translates it that way. Of course, you think, what's a yoke fellow? Someone that loves eggs. Uh, no, a yoke fellow, you had, uh, if you had oxen that were plowing, you would join them together with a yoke. That was the, the wooden beam that went over them and connected these oxen so that they could plow together and they could do more work because they're joined together. And so it has this analogy of you know, people that we are working with in Christ, we're doing that work together, and we're joined together working. Um, the word here uh, literally is syzygous. Some people thought maybe that's a person's name is syzygous. 
uh, but they actually haven't found that as like an actual common name. So I think it's just referring to someone in the congregation, they probably knew who it was talking about, that was someone that was going to be an appropriate person to help these two ladies to, to reconcile and to work through whatever was their disagreement that they had that had obviously gotten out of hand. Again, it's a beautiful thing to be used as a peacemaker. Now, one thing, too, in, you know, this was written in Greek, and uh, one of the things that is interesting about this is that there are actually four words in this verse that start with sin, S-Y-N, well, that's our letters, which means with or together. And actually, we have a lot of words in English that, that come from Greek, so if you think of, you know, some of these words, if you use the word synergy, it means to work together. Sin means together. Um, ergos means work. So synergy means working together. Uh, other words that we use, synthesis, even to be in sync with each other comes from this word. Um, there's others as well. And so we don't really see this in English, but in Greek, the word companion, the word for help, the one word which is labored side by side, and fellow workers all start with this prefix in Greek. So if you're a Philippian and you're reading this, I mean, I think that's going to stand out. I think that was intentional, saying that we're supposed to be with each other. We're supposed to be working together. We're supposed to be in sync with each other. I thought about calling this message brothers and sisters in sync, but it had way too many boy band connotations and <laughs> Sorry. For those of you that I just lost you for the rest of the message, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> you know, but we are supposed to be in sync with each other, the way that the Roman soldiers were in sync with their shields, that we're, we're in unison with each other, in harmony with each other, and not letting ourselves get out of, out of sync, disjointed from each other. And that's what the devil wants to happen instead. So being together, companions, helping each other, laboring side by side, fellow workers together in Christ. I want to talk about, remember, Paul started this section saying, therefore. He's trying to remind us of all the things he's taught so far in this letter. So with that in mind, I want to think of what are some practical ways that we can work through conflict with believers? And these are just a few things, definitely not exhaustive, I recommend a great book, A Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. Great book to work through on conflict resolution and also helping other people. But these would be things for you to think about for yourself if you're in conflict and hopefully avoiding conflict. And also things that maybe you could do to help other people as well when they are, you have brothers and sisters in Christ that are in some sort of conflict. And I'll tell you in a bit, hopefully you'll see why, where I came up with this list. But the first and foremost, make the glory of God the most important thing. You know, if your self-glory is the most important thing or some other agenda besides the glory of God, you're going to be out of sync with each other. You're going to be pulling in different directions. You're not going to be yoked together. You're going to be chasing different things. But if we can make the glory of God the most important thing, the glory of Jesus Christ, which also means the mission that God has for us, which is to help other people come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and to grow in him because Christ is glorified when people come to know him as Savior and his truth is proclaimed and then they, they learn to treasure Jesus Christ above all else. If we're all pulling towards that goal, there are so many things that we can put aside. And we can say we're not going to argue about what color the carpeting is or these trivial different things because we're keeping the main thing the main thing. And we're focused on that. And think about how often uh, disagreement happens because we are focused on our agendas instead of these. Now, sometimes there'll be disagreement as far as what best leads to the glory of God. But we need to at least start with genuinely wanting the glory of God. The glory of Jesus Christ is the main thing and working towards that. And not just saying that, not just using that as a cover for what we actually want, but deep inside, is that what you want? And that means there's times where we're going to be willing to suffer some slings and arrows. We're going to be willing to take some slights and not let ourselves get worked up about 
uh, every little thing that, you know, hits on our thin skin because realize that the glory of God is more important than this. Every time somebody seems to look at us the wrong way in the hallway, we're not going to just jump to conclusions because there's a lot of things we need to just let go. There are times when you need to deal with things, but there's so many things in life you just need to decide this isn't worth making a big deal about and just consciously deciding to just let that go. Paul, in chapter 1, Remember, he talked about, there, he's in prison, or imprisoned at least, he's chained up, and there were others that uh, were going around, and they were preaching about Christ, but with terrible motives. And in chapter 1, verse 15 through 18, he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am here for the defense of the gospel, The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So you recognize they have these bad motives. Uh, They're against Paul. They're for their own agenda, their own egos. But then what does Paul say? Remember this. He said in verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul was able to have that attitude because to him, the glory of Jesus Christ and the carrying forth of the gospel was more important than the fact that these people were doing it with bad motives to be against him. We have to have that mindset that, all, that the glory of God really is the ultimate thing that we're after. Next, we need to replace ego with humility. Replace our, our pride with humility. It's not about us. It's not about us as the center of the the world. Jesus Christ is the center. God is the center. He is the one that deserves this glory. And we need to be like him, uh, remembering what Paul taught us in chapter 2, giving us the example of Christ. He said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Remember Christ Jesus? What did he do? who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we had a message, we talked about that. That is the mindset we are supposed to have. And again, it's easy to do that when it's all theoretical. But when there's an actual person that we need to deal with and that person is irritating, that's when we still need to be like this. Remember, Christ didn't come to this world to save sweet, adorable, lovable, perfect people. And if he did, I would be out of luck. I am none of those things. But he came to save the, the irritable people, the sinners, the rebels, like me and like you. And he came down and humbled himself He deserved to be the center of everything. Okay, he is. And ultimately, everything does funnel to his glory. But he humbled himself to the most shameful death, death on a cross. And therefore, we need to be able to have that attitude as well, not living for our personal pride, but being humble, taking the lower place like Jesus did. Along with it, we were taught in chapter 2 as well to to do this, we'll say it like this, to understand and care about the interests of others, not just our own needs or selfish desires. Chapter 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. And then later, when he's talking about Timothy, he praised Timothy and said, I have no one like him, verse 20, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So this is something else that we need to put into practice uh, to avoid conflict, to help heal conflict, to help other people, is to understand and care about the interests of other people. And so often we have conflict because we're looking for our own agendas, and maybe it is a good thing. There are certain needs that we have or certain uh, goals that are not necessarily bad things, But one way that it goes south so quickly is when we only care about that. 
and we don't think about what about the other people and what are their needs, what are their interests, what, are, what is actually good for them. And sometimes we need to back up, we need to slow down and start thinking about other people besides ourselves. You know, what is my desire versus what is actually good for, for everyone and for other people as well so that our focus becomes bigger than just ourself or, you know, my family or my tight circle of friends, but what is best for Christ and his kingdom and his work that he is doing. That might mean conversations with other people, listening, talking to them. That might mean something where you get together with, uh, you know, that third person to help kind of understand, to hear them, to listen, do active listening. So you're trying to understand what actually is in their hearts. And through all of this, there might be some things that are, are not the greatest goals, but there might be other things that you can understand. Oh, I can see why you would think that. I can see why that would be important to you. And if you love them, you care about them, we're going to do what you can to uh, make their interests your own. So you're not just seeking our good, but, but their good as well even if at times it means sacrificing your personal preferences and definitely avoiding selfishness on our part. And that's when it really goes south really, really quick. I think it also means remembering that you haven't arrived yet. We looked at this in Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. 3.12. So remember that you haven't arrived yet, so you may be part of the problem. We need to be able to look into our own hearts. We need to be able to examine that and to not just think about all of, here's my list of the ways that that other person is a terrible person and why everything I want is good and I should get this and how I can negotiate to get exactly what I want, but to realize, yeah, there's things in our heart, all of us, because none of us are, are there yet. And there's selfishness that we let creep in. There's bruised ego. There's flat, all these different things that go on in our heart. We need to suspect ourselves and to own that. And when we need to, we need to repent of that. And when we need to, we need to ask for forgiveness from other people when we've let that affect the relationship. We need to look for our idols. What are these things that we've taken something that may be even a good thing and we've made it an ultimate thing, more important than the glory of God. We've made this something that we are going after and maybe our conflict is because we have these conflicting idols. Jesus Christ is the king. He is the one that it said, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that it at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is Lord, all glory to God the Father through him. That was chapter 2, 9 through 11. So if we apply this, that means we're going to, anything else that is taking the place of Jesus and the glory of God and becoming an idol, we need to reject that. Whether it's sin or a good thing that we put in the wrong position. Those that were enemies of Christ, it said in Philippians 3.19, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Think of that. Their God is their belly. What they worship, their idol, is their appetites. And maybe it's not just about food and Thanksgiving and stuffing it with stuffing and uh, Snickers uh, salad and all this, but you know, all these desires that we have, that's what people in this world, they seek after whether it's physical, sexual, uh, status. But that's their God. That's their idol. Look for your idols. And we all have them because we're all sinners. Their glory, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And finally, remember your relationship in Christ. Your relationship with Christ but also your relationship, again, with your brothers and sisters in Christ. We started the message talking about that, that we're brothers and sisters together, united in him. And if so if you are not seeing this other person as um, just, you know, some enemy, but you realize this is a brother and sister in Christ. We've been joined together. And yeah, there are false Christians. We get that. That's a different thing. But someone that's a brother and sister in Christ there's that relationship. 
Paul talks about this in many places. Um, standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. We're fellow citizens with one another. 4.1, therefore my brothers. And we just saw in 4.3, us coming together like this. And going back to the passage, notice how it ends. Fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. In the book of life together, in the book of Revelation 20 talks about this and there's a day of judgment that'll come and if your name is found in the book of life you're you're saved you're with him forever if your name is not found in the book of life then it says that if anyone's name is not written in the book of life he is thrown into the lake of fire that doesn't have to be your destiny christ died to take that away he took that punishment of hell for anyone that is willing to turn to him and you can escape that punishment of hell and know that your name is written in the book of life if you repent and turn to him and i urge you above everything else to do that and if you're a believer it means that your name has been written in the book of life and in god's mind from from all eternity that he knows this and think of this not just as a list of who's saved but this is this is a family record this is your family list and who are you going to spend eternity with. And we just had Thanksgiving and some of you get together with family and some it's more of a joy than others and some you realize, I got to get along because I'm going to have to see them at Christmas and I'm going to have to see them next Thanksgiving. And so you do your best and you realize that your family in that way. But how much more if we are brothers and sisters in Christ and it's not just we're going to see each other at a few family meals here and there, but we're going to be spending eternity together and that we're not just bound together by the blood that runs through our veins, but bound together by the blood that ran out of Jesus' veins, by which we are saved. And we have that bond, and we have that together. Let us remember this. Let's remember our relationship, brothers and sisters, and with Christ's grace, to be able to be united with one another. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the joy and the privilege that it is to be bound together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, with Jesus Christ, our elder brother, and God the Father as our loving, faithful, and awesome Father, bound in the Holy Spirit for all eternity. Lord, let us protect and preserve this unity. Let us strive together and work against anything that would drive us apart. Help us to do this even when it is very difficult. And Lord, I pray for anyone here that recognizes that they are in disunity with someone else. Help them to search their heart and to seek you and to listen to you and what you would have them to do to work towards reconciliation. We praise you. We thank you for Jesus Christ that reconciles sinners like us with the Holy God. Help us to live for his glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.